All right, so we're going to continue this morning with our study in the doctrine of salvation. And I just want to give you a quick recap where we've been uh, up, to this, up to this point. Uh, we have looked so far at the need for salvation. We spent a couple weeks looking at that. Um, and then we spent a couple weeks looking at the provision for salvation. And then last week, Will began walking us through the accomplishment of salvation, which is where we're at this morning, part two. Um, and last week, Will walked us through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he specifically looked at a few aspects of that, his divinity, his humanity, his sinlessness, and his humiliation. And in all of these things, we got a clear picture of why we needed the Lord Jesus to come. And because of who he is to accomplish our salvation. And with that understanding, we're going to be looking this morning at the work that our Lord Jesus accomplished in order to secure this salvation for us. And the main way that we're going to look at this work that he has accomplished is by looking at the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. First, we're going to look at types and shadows of substitutionary atonement that we see in the Old Testament. Um, so like right from the beginning, we see the need um, for a death to take place in order for mercy to be given to sinners. And we see that theme run throughout the scriptures and culminate in the work that the Lord Jesus has accomplished. Um, so let's begin by looking right at the beginning. So if you have your, your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We spent a decent amount of time looking at this um, passage when we were talking about the need for salvation. So I want to read verses 1 through 7. And uh, since my voice is a little hoarse this morning, I'm going to ask for some people to jump in and help me with the reading. So if somebody can take chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 for us. Okay. Des, thanks. Okay, so what we see here is after their rebellion against God, their sinfulness is exposed and they realize that they're naked and because of that they are ashamed. So you see there in verse 7, to try to cover this up, they sew fig leaves together to cover their loins so that their nakedness is no longer exposed and their shame is covered. However, that is not sufficient in the sight of a holy God. So when God shows back up in the garden, they hide themselves, right? They recognize here is a holy God. And after that, you probably remember the rest of the story here. God pronounces the curse upon the serpent, the woman, the man on the earth itself. But then he does something miraculous there in verse 21 in chapter 3. I want you to look at that. I'll just read verse 20 along with it. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And now notice this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, so here you have back in chapter, or I mean in verse 7, where Adam and Eve seek to cover themselves up. And then in verse 21, you have God covering them up. Okay? What they tried to do was not sufficient to stand in the presence of a holy God, and so God has mercy upon them. Now, the question that should arise here is, where did these garments of skin come from? The logical answer is that animals 
or an animal had to be killed in order for them to have these garments of skin. So here you have the first instance of substitutionary atonement, right? As you, as you read through that account, uh, after it says that you know, they've rebelled against God and they eat of the fruit, it wouldn't be odd to say, and God killed Adam and Eve, right? Because he said, if you, if you eat of it, you're going to die, right? And we would say, that's not unjust if God did that. But he extends mercy. The gospel is pronounced. He covers them in garments of skins of animals that obviously had been slain in order for them to be covered. So you get a picture right there at the outset of God's mercy and the necessity for his justice to be appeased by a substitutionary atonement. So I think that's a pretty clear picture for us of both judgment and mercy at the same time. Judgment toward the animal or the animals and mercy toward Adam and Eve. Now, the next one that I want to look at here is in Exodus 12. So go ahead and turn there with me. Exodus 12, and in this chapter, you have the events of the first Passover, what's going to happen during the Passover, what God requires. So I want to go ahead and read verses 1 through 13 here. So if somebody can jump in and read verses 1 through 13, that would be much appreciated. Scott, thanks. Thanks, Scott. Now, if, if, you've, if you're familiar with the plagues up to this point, what's interesting about this one is that it includes all who are living in the land of Egypt, not just Egyptians, but the Israelites as well. And, and why is that? Because Israel is as guilty before the Lord as the Egyptians are. Right? I want you to look with me. Keep your finger there in Exodus 12. Look with me at Ezekiel chapter 20. And let's look at verses 4 through 10 here. I'm going to go ahead and read this. <coughs> and I'll back up to verse 3, actually. Ezekiel 20, son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be in inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt, 
I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that I should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. So there, there you have a good historical recount of how God saw their time in the land of Egypt, that they were not these innocent people living in the land, that they had mixed with the Egyptians in worshiping their false gods. And so this 10th plague is necessary for the Israelites to prepare for this. The other plagues, the Israelites just sat back and watched God do his thing, so to speak. But this one, God calls them to do something. The firstborn of the Israelites are not automatically spared from death. And so God commands them to kill a lamb, to roast it, eat it, and spread its blood on the doorframe of the house. And the implication of this is that if they do not follow this command, then the firstborn of Israel, as well as the firstborn of the Egyptian, will die. Thus, the lamb here becomes a substitute for the firstborn Israelite son dying in his place. So here again, we see this substitutionary atonement. And the institution of the Passover was something that would be celebrated every year in, in uh, Exodus 13. God tells them to continue that as he does here in Exodus 12. It was to remind them of what it took for God to save them. And when we get into the New Testament, we're going to look back at the Passover and see the parallels between this event and the substitutionary work of Christ. But Exodus 12, again, is another clear indicator for us of the necessity of substitutionary atonement, that something or someone must die in order for others to be spared. Okay. Now, I want to move forward a little bit further. Just making our way through books here. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Let's go to Leviticus 16. And don't worry, we're not going to go through every book of the Old Testament. But Leviticus 16, you may remember, is the Day of Atonement. Preparations for the Day of Atonement, what that ought to look like. If you're familiar with the book of Leviticus, you may remember that this book is filled with all these different sacrifices that Israel is required to make in order to maintain their relationship with God. And at the center of these sacrifices that, was, uh, that is the sacrifice that was made on the Day of Atonement, which is what we see here in Leviticus 16. And at the center of that ceremony on the Day of Atonement, are two goats, one that was sacrificed to the Lord and the other that was sent off into the wilderness. And the purpose of these ceremonies, again, was to do what? To make atonement for the people of Israel. Now, there's something very significant about the way that Leviticus 16 starts off. I want you to see this here. Look with me at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. That's a very interesting way to begin this section here. He's calling them back to what happened earlier on. And if you look back with me here at Leviticus 10, this is very important to see. In Leviticus 10, we have the death of Nadab and Abihu. There's, I could just spend the rest of the time here, but it's, I don't want to. So let me just try to recap it very quickly. 
right before what happens in Leviticus 10, in Leviticus, is Leviticus 8 and 9, you have the consecration uh, or the setting apart of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. And God is very specific on how the priests are to approach him. And so what happens in these chapters is that they are set apart properly in accordance with the commands of God, and they sacrifice properly according to the commands of God. And the result of that is the glory of God appearing to the people and fire coming from the Lord and consuming their sacrifices. So the people are in awe of this, and they fall on their faces when they see God show up in this way. It was just an awesome sight of God blessing his people with his presence, but they recognized what it took in order for God to reveal himself to them. Now, when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, see this happen, they seek to worship the Lord. But they do so in an unauthorized way, a way that the Lord had not commanded. How powerfully, just a side note here, how powerfully this speaks to us about proper worship in the sight of God, that this isn't something that God takes lightly. We can't just worship God however we want to. Right? We have an example of seeing that happen, of what that looks like when we just think, it doesn't matter how you worship God, just worship him. It does matter, and what we see here, see here in Leviticus 10 verses 1 through 3 is a very stark reminder, so let's read that. If I can have somebody read Leviticus 10 verses 1 through 3 for me. Okay, whoever would like to read it. Will, thank you. Right at the institution of the priesthood and how to go through the process of rightly worshiping God, you have this example right at the beginning. And God kills Nadab and Abihu for their unauthorized way of coming before him. So now when we go back to Leviticus 16 and we have that first verse to introduce us back into the proper worship of the Lord, Verse 2 goes on and says, And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to read a section of this as well, so track along with me. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Right? So, so here it is. Let Aaron know this. This is for his protection, for his good, that he can't just come in at any time or he will die as well. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, so there's a proper prescription here, in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put then, I'm sorry, and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself 
and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness is. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Okay, a few more verses here. And when he has made an end of, it, of the atonement for the holy place, and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to, re to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So what we see, again, from this account is the proper way to approach and worship God. And notice that it is only through substitutionary atonement that that proper worship can happen. One goat dies on behalf of the people and its blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat so that the wrath of God is appeased. The other goat is taken outside the community of Israel, outside the camp, after the sins of Israel had been symbolically transferred from the people to the goat. And so rather than the people, so that goat was symbolizing, rather than the people being cut off from God, the goat is cut off as he bears the sins of Israel upon himself being driven out into the wilderness. So again, here you see both the judgment of God and the mercy of God at the same time and how serious that is. It's not something to be taken lightly. Okay? So you have those examples as types of what was to come in the future. Now, one passage that I want to look at that just foreshadows what Christ was going to do is probably the most popular foreshadow of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he would accomplish, and that's found in Isaiah 53. So go ahead and turn to Isaiah 53. And I want you to notice as we read through this, I'm going to ask somebody to jump in and, and read. Um, but as we read through this, I want you to notice how it talks about the substitutionary atonement of what this person who would come is going to accomplish. How, the, how it uses the pronouns, where it refers to he and we, or him and us. And you see this substitution taking place continuously throughout this chapter. So if, can I have somebody read Isaiah 53? For us. Diana Lynn, thank you. Yeah. 
Okay, good. So the substitutionary atonement is just so clear in that, in that passage right there. And we're going to come back to this one as well because it's referenced again in the New Testament in the book of Acts. But just verse 11, the second half of that, um, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So right there, so clear. Righteousness given to many, iniquities bore upon himself, right? And that just runs all throughout Isaiah 53. What a beautiful passage that is uh, for us. But again, what this shows us is the necessity of substitutionary atonement, that man cannot atone for his sins, right? If we die in a state of unbelief before God, if we have not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is no atonement that you can make. You'll just pay for your sins for all of eternity in hell. And that is a frightening prospect. But God has done something. He has put forward a substitutionary atonement for us. So just as these three passages or four passages that we've looked at so far, just through these, hopefully we can see the necessity that God places upon this substitutionary atonement, that one is to pay for the sins of the other so as to satisfy the justice and wrath of a holy God. Now, with that, let's move into the New Testament. In John's Gospel, um, and sorry, I couldn't get the PowerPoint operational, so I've got a couple passages here that I'm just going to read for you. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him for baptism, and he says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, imagine yourself a Jew who has been raised your whole life memorizing the Torah and hearing the word of God consistently. And you hear this guy next to you point to another man and say about him, behold, the Lamb of God. Your mind, because your mind has been so saturated with the scriptures since birth, is going to go back to probably two places. One is the Passover, where a lamb had to be slain and its blood put on the doorpost in order for the wrath of God to pass over the house. The second is probably Day of Atonement, even though there you see a goat uh, being slain. But the same thing would be, would be true here. The recognition of this, what you're saying about this man is that he is going to function in a way where he takes sin away from us. It would have been a startling statement. And for the Jew who was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, as all Jews were, but the ones who could really see that reality, how exciting that would have been. This is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. So that's what would be running through their minds, but there's something interesting about John's statement that goes beyond just what we have seen in Exodus and in Leviticus. And it's a point that John makes over and over again in his gospel, and in particular in his first epistle, and that is this. He doesn't say that this is the Lamb of God who will only take away the sins of Israel as all other lambs did. This lamb is going to take away the sin of the world. Now, that would have blown some categories right there because they're thinking, as the scriptures clearly lay out, that when the lamb or the goat was sacrificed, it was sacrificed to take away the sins of the people of Israel. The Gentile nations didn't partake in that. They weren't beneficiaries of that substitutionary atonement. But now John, the Baptist here, broadens that out and helps us to see the coming of the Messiah, that indeed he would be the one who would take away the sin of the world. This lamb would reach beyond the borders of Israel into every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as the rest of the New Testament shows us. And the requirement of this lamb, 
just like the requirement of the lamb back in Exodus 12, is that it must be a lamb without blemish. Will hit on this a little bit last week when he talked about the sinlessness of our Lord Jesus. Look with me at 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. <coughs> and look how Peter refers to the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then watch what he says here. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Right? So, so he sees in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the acceptable lamb of God. He's the one who is sufficient to actually take those sins away. The writer of Hebrews says something very similar. I had this on the PowerPoint, so let me just turn to it real quick. In Hebrews 9, verse 14, well, I'll back up to verse 13, where it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, just like you saw back in the Old Testament sacrifices, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, now watch what it says here about him, offered himself without blemish to God. Purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In order for Jesus to be a fit substitutionary atonement, he had to be Spotless. That spotlessness was essential because as our substitute, we needed him to live for us, to earn our righteousness since we have in ourselves no righteousness at all. But not only did we need him to live in our place to secure our righteousness, we also needed him to die in our place, to take away our sins and to take away the wrath of God that was stored us up against us. So I want to look at some some further passages that talk about this aspect of our Lord Jesus Christ as the sufficient substitutionary atonement who would once and for all deal with the sin of his people. I want to begin with a text that probably isn't focused that much on the, when we talk about substitutionary atonement. It's probably not one that you run to. Well, let me ask you, can you think of passages that you kind of have readily in your mind that speak to the substitutionary work of Christ. So just raise your hand if you've got one. Diana Lynn? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he has made him to be sin for us, the union of sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Amen. That's probably the one that I go to first in my mind as well, right? Okay. Can anybody think of any other passages, Des? Yes. Yeah, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay? I want you to look with me at John's Gospel again, at chapter 11. And this is such a beautiful display of the sovereignty of God. I'm going to read verses 45 through 52 in John 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? <coughs> For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
Now watch this. It's interesting, right? See, here's Caiaphas. You know nothing at all. And then right after this, it, basically the scripture says Caiaphas didn't even know what he was saying. Right? Verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Right? So there you have another example of substitutionary atonement. It's necessary for one to die rather than the whole. It's better that it would happen that way. Look with me at Acts chapter 8. Just moving through a few passages here that hit on this. Acts chapter 8. And this pulls us back to Isaiah 53. I want to look at Acts 8. And if I can have somebody read verses 26 through 35. 26 through 35 in Acts chapter 8. Who would read that for us? Okay. Okay. Emily, go ahead. Yeah. Go for it. Isn't that awesome? So here he is, Philip, go over here, and this guy's reading Isaiah 53. And he's reading this particular portion of Isaiah. I mean, that's like an evangelist dream, right? You're just like, it's like, really? Tell me, is this about himself or about someone else? And you're just like, oh, Lord, please let that happen. And how would you contain yourself, right? You're just like, oh, man, this is like just dropped right in my lap. Um, but, but again, there, there you have that example of the Ethiopian eunuch reading this, and who is this about? And Philip starts with this scripture, and he tells him the good news about Jesus and his substitutionary work. Going on, let's look at the book of Romans here, chapter 3. And let's look at verses 21 through 26, but before we read that, um, if you're familiar with Romans 1 in particular, starting at verse 18 and up, to, up through chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Paul has been on this inspired mission by the Holy Spirit to prove that both Jew and Gentile are condemned in the sight of God, that they're under his wrath. So is there, is there any hope? You know, Paul's painting this just this black picture is just like here's what humanity looks like Jew and Gentile where is where is the hope and then he just launches in here at verse 21 and says here is where the hope is and watch how this hope comes to us verses 21 through 26 if I can have somebody read that for us okay Over sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. 
So that, that passage is so clear there about the substitutionary work of Christ and the necessity of it, right? That God can't overlook sin, right? All, all the sins of that, that have been committed by the saints in the Old Testament, the, the, the sacrifices of blood and goats aren't sufficient to take those away, but to only to temporary cover, temporarily cover them. And so God puts Jesus on display, as that says. He puts him forward as a propitiation, as a wrath-bearing substitute. And in that, he shows, I'm just. The way that I can forgive is not by overlooking your sins, but by punishing them, but not on you, but on my son, who takes them on your behalf. And so that's why verse 26 says, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just in the fact that sins have been dealt with, wrath has been exhausted, justice is satisfied, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He can look upon us as innocent because he has charged his son as guilty at the cross. Okay, so we see very clear the substitutionary atonement that our Lord has secured for us. I've got a bunch of other passages. I'm just trying to think of which ones I want to hit here. Okay, let's go to uh, Romans 8, verses 1 through 3. I'm out of water, so I can't read anymore. Somebody want to read Romans 8, 1 through 3? Okay, good. So notice that. There's no condemnation for us now in Christ Jesus. Now, why? Why is there no condemnation for us? Because we've been set free from this law of sin and death that we used to be under. And, and how did we get out from underneath that law of sin and death? God sends forth his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on, and on account of sin or as a sin offering, he condemns sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus, right? And so there, the wrath of God is satisfied, and that's how you stand in a position now where there's no condemnation left for you. Isn't that amazing? There isn't one charge on your account. That's mind-blowing. And you just think about a day and how many sinful thoughts come across your mind and how many words you can say that are sinful. Thank you. That's massive. I appreciate that. Um, that, that is mind-blowing. Look, look at verse 33 here in, in chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Isn't that amazing? Who, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? And in your mind, it's like, man, they could bring all kinds of charges against me. But watch what he says. It is God who justifies. And then notice verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I was just... This substitutionary atonement, man, that should just cause your heart to soar perpetually as you think about the severity of your sin and what it took in order for God to justify you, but the love that was manifested in our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would come willingly, sent by his Father to secure and accomplish our salvation. Diana Lynn mentioned that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, which is just a classic text <coughs> that deals with the substitutionary work of Christ, that we are made righteous because of what the Son has accomplished on our behalf, because he's taken away our sin. He gives us his righteousness. That great exchange has taken place for the people of God. Um, let me just focus on one last passage here. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. 
And if somebody can read verses 10 through 13. Go ahead and read verse 14. Okay, so the, the, you, you see that aspect again of all who are relying on the works of the law. And essentially that's what religion is, right? Is reliance upon something that you can do in order to make yourself presentable to God. And so Paul is inspired to say here, those who are relying on that are under a curse, right? And here's the reason, because it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So perfection is necessary, right? It's just not give it your best shot and let's see how you do. If you don't abide by all things written in the book of the law and practice them, you're cursed. Right? So, I mean, none of us have to think very long about the reality that we haven't lived up to that standard. As verse 11 says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Okay? So how do we get out of that? And here's the solution that is provided. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, how did he do this? By becoming a curse for us. Right? So here you have that aspect of substitution again you were cursed for your law breaking Christ comes and he takes your curse off of you and takes it upon himself because it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree it's so vital to understand that Jesus is taken outside of Jerusalem to be crucified because what that was signifying was him being cut off from the community of Israel, from the community of blessing. And he was to be seen as the cursed one. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That couldn't be done in Jerusalem or it would defile the land. And yet what they failed to see is that he was taking the wrath of God on behalf of his people so that all who are in him as verse 14 says, are now blessed by God. So you move from that status of cursed by God to blessed by God because of the substitutionary work of Christ. Okay. There's other passages, but hopefully that's sufficient to help you see um, how all of these texts point us to the work of our Lord in fulfilling righteousness on our behalf and taking God's wrath away from us and onto himself. Leviticus 17.11 and Hebrews 9.22 that Des mentioned earlier remind us that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and, and how we ought to pray that God would renew our hearts afresh to take time daily to meditate on the unspeakable love of Christ and what he has accomplished to make us his own in becoming that once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice for us. Amen? Amen. Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to spend thinking about substitutionary atonement and father as we go all the way back to the garden and we see the need for that and your grace in giving it I pray that it would cause us as we think about the necessity of substitutionary atonement that it would cause us to remember 
how holy you are, how vile sin is in your sight, that this is what it would take, but that it would also cause our hearts to soar as we behold the grace and the mercy and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't fully grasp what he experienced at that cross and taking upon himself the sins of all God's people. But we ask that you would grant us a greater understanding of that and that it would cause our hearts to soar and would cause our lives to be ones that can be characterized by joyful obedience to you, Father. You are worthy of that, and we desire to live to that end. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.